everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York, the texture of the city, its history, the vibe. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, architects, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight's, we celebrate an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York, about half of them, believe it or not. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored bicycles. They've been here for more than 200 years and how they became part of New York's life. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. Uh, we've looked at our public library systems. New York has three, everyone. We have three public library systems, not one and not two. We visited the subway. We've looked at public art. We visited our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Stitcher, Google, and other services. Tonight's one of those special shows. Uh, it's called Architecture and Landmarks. Specifically, we're going to speak with two architects and find out how they deal with some of the challenges that are posed, not just with designing things in New York, but how buildings are designed and renovations are planned given the strictures of our famous Landmark and Preservation Commission which on one side of the scale is a pain in the butt, but on the other really uh, uh, keeps the physical and cultural heritage of the city intact. And for that, uh, we're grateful for most of the work of the Landmarks Preservation Commission. Um, I have two guests and a regular who's going to be my co-host tonight. Uh, my two guests are architects Wayne Norbeck and Jordan Ragov. They are both partners and co-founders of DXA Studio. Wayne leads client relationships and design direction while overseeing overall project development and management of the multi-award winning studio. With 20 years of experience, he is equally facile at conceiving design solutions for large scale public spaces down to intricate customize and fabrication details. Some of Wayne's projects include leading the design of the 300,000 square foot Maverick residential towers in Chelsea, developments in Astoria in Harlem, a 170 room hotel in Tribeca, a nonprofit community development in Zambia, and a performance and artist-based development initiative in Detroit, among others. Jordan has 20 years of experience, Jordan Rogov. Uh, he serves as co-founder of DXA. He leads the creative design process, managing the studio and guiding projects through complex municipal approval processes, including landmarks, community boards, and New York's famous Board of Standards and Appeals. Jordan is also working on the 300,000 square foot Maverick project in Chelsea. He's working on a 27,000 square foot conversion of the landmarked Mount Pleasant Baptist Church on the Upper West Side into a mixed use building, which we're going to talk about tonight. A renovation of a historic Brooklyn brewery, a vertical commercial enlargement of a building that's landmarked at 831 Broadway, which we're also going to talk about tonight, and a recently completed condominium in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. My co-host tonight is the show's special consultant, my friend David Griffin. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, and he provides creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David hosts a series called Room at the Top. Actually, he co-hosts it with Jennifer Wallace of Nason Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David has a great blog. It's called Every Building on Fifth. that documents every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square right up to where the Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. And it ends at the Harlem Armory. That itself is worth visiting. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. Wayne and Jordan, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York, and David, a hearty welcome back. It's always good to have you back with the show. It's 
Good to be here. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, pleasure to uh, welcome our guests, Jordan and Wayne. Uh, very uh, interesting material to discuss today. Um, so, Jeff, do you want to start off with the? the sure. Thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wayne and Jordan, I always like to give our listeners a background of of our guests and and what brought them to the special field that we're going to talk about. I'd like to talk for a minute about your respective backgrounds and when each of you decided that you would become architects and this was your calling, this is what you would do. I, I uh, First of all, thanks for having us tonight. It's exciting to be here uh, and talking to you guys. Um, I've always felt bad for people that have struggled to find out exactly what they want to do because I think I knew at like age six or seven that I wanted to be an architect. Happened pretty quickly with like little Star Wars figurines making you know, really intricate uh, sets and we got into lighting. I even drew up plans. Um, so it kind of kind of happened pretty naturally and pretty early in, in my development. Yeah, and, and same for me. You know, I, I, I don't remember actually any other career that I was considering. Um, you know, it just kind of came about at almost like age four or five, just doing, really getting into drawing art and so forth. And then you know, a, a real interest for creating, you know, places that you can inhabit and creating the world. And, and so architecture was just a natural choice. Um, so mm. uh, so uh, what is it like in terms of working with landmarked structures? Um, you know, as you move forward, uh, we're going to be talking up in, in great detail about certain projects, but do you have a sort of a, uh, a basic kind of approach for those buildings that you kind of work from? I think uh, whenever we get a landmark project, the first thing we do is just, uh, you know, uh, understand the history of that building. And the, the Landmarks Preservation Commission has done a really nice job uh, putting together designation reports on those properties. And so the first step is always uh, understanding what district it's in or if it's an individual landmark and then hitting the books to understand uh, I guess the kind of fungibility uh, of of the uh, project. Oftentimes, you'll find out that they're contributing buildings, and that there's not a whole lot that can be changed about them. And then it really becomes a matter of what are the opportunities to add to this project? Um, uh, is it a vertical enlargement? Is it new construction? Um, so it, it all starts with really understanding the history and the importance. And the contribution that that building's making to the to the history of the city. Okay, um, so for listeners of the show who are not necessarily familiar with the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, uh, which I think might be quite a few people, um, the Landmarks Preservation Commission is a um, authority uh, run through the city government. It was founded in 1963-1964 and became fully active in 1964 as a response to the demolition of Pennsylvania Station, a building by McKim Mead and White, 1910-1912, uh, which was torn down during those years uh, in the face of massive public protest. And uh, so the Landmarks Preservation Commission was sort of uh, brought into being at that time. Uh, it designated also not only individual landmarks. Uh, I think the first year there were 50 landmarks that they designated in 1964. Uh, it, they also began to designate historic districts, which was a new thing for many American cities. Um, I think New York City had some of the earliest historic district codes in the United States outside of Charleston, Savannah, and Boston, which I think are the three major cities which began to enact those policies prior to New York. And um, so the uh, first historic district in New York City was Brooklyn Heights. Um, the second one was Sniffin Court, a little known district, which was actually in Midtown, a very, very uh, cute collection of small stables, which is uh, preserved. And was only Sniffin Court, David? I thought it was the whole West Village, but it wasn't. It was just Sniffin Court. No, Sniffin Court was the second one. That oh. was the second one. The, the, the uh, Greenwich Village designation actually took place as five separate designations over a 40 year period. And they're still growing it. So that was never one single designation. It's something that's been linked up through time. Uh, Greenwich Village is the, I think it's the largest, um, that's the largest historic district in Manhattan in terms of the number of buildings, but the largest one in terms of actual size is the Upper East Side. The reason why that has quote unquote fewer buildings is because so many of them are large luxurious apartment houses and department stores. So those take up more space but they're both gigantic. And then the one on the Upper West Side is also notable too. 
Um, there was, of course, that challenge uh, to Grand Central. They were going to propose demolishing that in 1968. And that is the case that went to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court decided in favor of the city and the Landmarks Commission. And that really kind of gave that body a, a lot more authority than, than people assumed that it had. So we've been sort of, you know, I think the Landmarks and Preservation Community, the real estate community, they can and often are the same thing. Um, but there's definitely give and take back and forth and, you know, arguments that arise. So just to provide some context for moving forward. Um, Jeff, Jordan and Wayne, I, um, I'd like to ask you, before we get into the specific buildings, which I'm really excited to, uh, to learn about your work on each of them, um, I'd like to ask you some, um, a couple of general questions, or actually a general question. What are some of the, the challenges you face generally that you have to deal with when working with buildings that have landmark protection, that have been given this protection by the Landmark and Preservation Commission? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that makes New York City so unique generally in the zoning is that uh, properties are, are sort of as of right. And um, in landmark situations, that is not exactly the case. So we'll have individual landmarks or landmark districts and so when a, when a client is, is purchasing a property in one of those districts, they're, they're not exactly sure what they can do with it, especially if there's excess FAR that, that, that's remaining. So that becomes a, quite a challenge because you're, you have to educate your client into what the expectations are with landmarks, what's kind of reasonably acceptable or has been acceptable over time. And then of course, there's a, a longer sort of approval process that goes with that. And, um, you know, the the added dynamics of, of community opposition and how that plays into the, the, the whole process. It can, be, it can become something where if the client isn't sort of seasoned for that, um, it can be quite a learning experience. And we have to really um, kind of uh, walk them through that process and make them aware so that um, you know, we can keep them on track with their uh, project. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's difficult is being the bearer of bad news in many circumstances. We get a lot of calls from clients to say, well, we're looking to put a 20-story addition on this little four-story, you know, uh, gem of a building in the West Village. And we got to be like, nope, <laughs> you cannot put 20 stories on that building. And uh, more often than not, that's kind of the end of the project. Um, but uh, oftentimes, we find clever solutions, ways to maintain the historical integrity of the building and still get um, get our clients uh, what they're looking for in terms of area or value uh, uh, to the property. I think um, the other big challenge we have uh, with these projects is uh, very frequently it's, it's uh, more expensive to restore and renovate a building than it is to, to build ground up. And so the number of our projects where we have very important kind of historic fabric uh, to maintain we have to do a lot of structural work to hold it in place uh, while there's demolition occurring um, inside its walls to allow, uh, you know, new stairs, new elevators, new circulation, um, and a much more um, uh, safe and robust um, structural system uh, to be built. So, so the cost sometimes is a little bit of a challenge. and That's something we also have to educate uh, our, our clients uh, to as well. Uh, in general, what would you say are some of the opportunities or benefits for working with landmark buildings, uh, the other side of the coin, as it were? I, I, I mean, I think there's the intellectual side where it's just the learning about the history, different construction technologies, um, and, and previous architects, like all the work that they've done and what it's meant to the city. It helps kind of I, you know, it helps you feel good about what, what you do as an architect, um, that there's kind of a communication happening between us as con contemporary um, or, or architects in the present um, complementing or building upon uh, what, what the architects of the past have contributed to the city. So, so I think that's, that's pretty great. And then there's also, you know, Wayne and I are always talking about how do we make our project authentic? How do we how do we make it rooted in the, in, in the place that it's built? And I think that understanding uh, a place's history and, and the architecture that was practiced there allow us to respond to that in, in a more contemporary way. And just by virtue of that process, you, you tend to establish an authenticity to the, the architecture that you create. 
So it, it, it adds, it adds a lot. Uh, and we benefited greatly uh, in, our, in our first uh, 10 years of practice uh, from doing a lot of these projects. Yeah, to add to that, I think, you know, one of, one of the things that's great about it is that, you know, these, these buildings have been landmarked, the neighborhoods have been landmarked because they were of a certain quality. So by working on these projects, you're, you're kind of guaranteed the opportunity to, to be able to work with quality materials and to build things in a, in a way that, that sometimes we don't get the opportunity if, if the budgets are tight. So there's, there's not really a, a way to kind of cheap out on the, on this quality level of, of landmark projects. And um, I think that's an exciting thing to participate in as an architect to, uh, to be able to attain that. Another way of putting it is if you're uh, uh, trying to do it on the cheap, don't buy a landmark building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with Wayne Norbeck and Jordan Rogov, co-founders and partners in DXA Studio you're listening to Rediscovering New York and we'll be back in a moment you're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc now broadcasting 24 hours a day Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Innings. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. episode 114 on rediscovering new york which i'm calling landmarks and architects not uh, architecture and landmarks but architects and landmarks because without architects we would not have architecture and architects bring so much of their creativity and their personal vision to their projects my guests are wayne norbeck and jordan rogov they're partners and co-founders of dxa studio and my co-host for this show is david griffin of landmark branding uh wayne and jordan um DXA has worked with some of New York's most historic landmark structures. What was your first major project uh, on a building that, that had landmark status? Yeah, the, the first one for us was uh, 7 Harrison Street in Tribeca. And this was actually our, <clears throat> our first project as a studio uh, back in 2011 when, when Jordan and I started the office. 
And um, so this was a, a conversion of a former sort of cheese warehouse into luxury residential condominiums. And, um, you know, in addition to restoring the facade, we, we were able to get a full sort of uh, glass penthouse up on top of the building. And it was a really interesting story because it's, it, we were able to do that because it was completely out of view. Um, but that was a, a, a great process for us. We, we were lucky enough to get the project through the approval process and in one presentation. And it really started off our, our kind of careers in, in this level of expertise on, on Landmarks projects. And to our listeners who don't know, when a building is landmarked, uh, it's very, very difficult to change the look of a building from the street. So if you want to build up uh, from street level, it has to look the same as it was when the Landmark and Preservation Commission brought their gavel down and said that it is a landmark. Um, There's a very important factor, of course, dealing with landmark buildings, and that's working with uh, or as some people in business might say, dealing with <laughs> local communities and leaders of those communities, uh, preservationists, community boards, etc. Uh, in general, have you thought, have you faced like what you would consider a lot of opposition for your projects? You feel that you maintain a very good dialogue with people from the get-go. Have there been unexpected challenges in terms of communication, in terms of specific audiences for your message? I think our work has been really well received. Uh, there have been a few exceptions where um, there's been a lot of opposition, but for the most part, it, uh, it's been it's been well received. I think we had a nice string of about six or seven unanimous first-time approvals at LPC, which was really rare um, uh, for a number of projects. Um, when we have received opposition, um, it's oftentimes been you know there's been kind of a uh, a subplot to it, right? Uh, ulterior motives, uh, whether it's whatever we're creating is blocking somebody's view or windows, or they're worried about uh, more people kind of moving into the neighborhood. It seldom has to do with really um, you know, issues that are part of the landmarks review process or consideration, like mm-hmm. with what's within their purview. And that is the argument of, of, of what we're creating. Is it appropriate? Is it an appropriate contribution or, or a new kind of contributing element to a otherwise uh, preserved neighborhood. Um, so the opposition has really come in the form of, again, like uh, erecting a, uh, a portion of a building that covers some lot line windows, which are not kind of legally in, entitled to the neighbors. Um, and, and so those, those types of things. We do engage the community very frequently um, when we go to uh, the Landmarks Preservation Commission, um, just by virtue of that process, those doors don't open until you go to, to the local community board and meet with their landmarks um, uh, committee. And so we've, we've had a lot of experience going to those committees and had a lot of success with them. Um, but there are, there are some people that are very nimby. They don't want to see, um, they don't want to see new things built. Um, there's kind of a sense of uh, in your neighborhood I think a fear of change from a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, but more often than not, when we present and we work with communities, um, they're eventually won over um, by thoughtful design and realize that what we're doing is um, it, it is 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 a kind of good thoughtful way of uh, of of creating kind of value for the next generation. We can't remain static as a city. Um, we're going to keep evolving. We're going to keep changing. More people are going to move to New York, and so we've got to we've got to find room for everybody. And uh, and sometimes those interactions actually make quite a big impact on the design. We we worked on a project, uh, 102 Green Street in Soho, and um, there were some some folks from the community board that that pushed us to really emphasize uh, a kind of beautiful steel door that had been created by the artist William Tarr. And, um, and through that, that dialogue with the community board and, and then ultimately with Landmarks, we ended up altering the design and making that the sort of front and center feature, the way that you actually walk in and out of the building. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that was a great positive kind of uh, exchange for us that, that really helped the project. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you a, a granular professional question. Do most architects work with and deal with community boards the same way you guys do, or do you find that that there are differences in the way that that architects try to uh, uh, get their plans across? I think I, I think a lot of them do. Um, you know, there's there's a requirement uh, to to go into landmarks, but we 
or I'm sorry, going to community boards uh, in order to get uh, to landmarks uh, to public hearing. Um, but we kind of take it to the next level. We'll do the community board, we'll come back, uh, uh, even though that that's not required. We've done that many times. There's also, um, uh, there's organizations like the, the Greenwich Village Historic Preservation Society, uh, Landmarks West, uh, and, and other groups that are kind of fighting um, to preserve parts of, uh, of their districts. And we frequently engage them. So I think a lot of architects do, but maybe not all of them do as much as we do to, to, to have those conversations. And, and to Wayne's uh, point, I couldn't agree more. Um, there have been a lot of circumstances where our project has been dramatically improved uh, by, by input from the Landmarks Preservation Commission and some of the Landmarks organizations that we talk to. Um, sometimes you stop seeing what's in front of you and it takes other sets of eyes and, and kind of com commentary and, and such, a, a, such a, a, a process with scrutiny uh, to really um, see opportunities that you might not have otherwise seen. Mm. Um, moving on into specific projects, um, we'd like to start talking about some of the, the buildings that you've worked on. Uh, the lobby of 100 Barclay, for example, it's a, a building for people unfamiliar with the location that's directly across from the New World Trade Center, uh, one of the largest skyscrapers constructed of its time, and the first building that we would consider Art Deco uh, in New York City. It's a fantastic example of it. Um, very, very early, 1922-1928, I think was the design. Uh, it's also one of New York's city's relatively few interior landmarks. There are only about 200 interior landmarks in all of New York City at this time. Um, the architect, of course, was Ralph Walker, uh, who was a major proponent of a type of expressionist art, uh, architecture that then sort of evolved into American Art Deco. We worked very closely with numerous sort of telephone companies to develop specific types of buildings for them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that project, uh, what you did, and whether the guidelines were particularly um, sort of detail-oriented as this was an interior and there were a lot of sort of more fragile surfaces, I imagine, to kind of consider? Well, um, Ralph Walker was also known. It's somebody that, until we moved to New York, didn't know too much about, but he was considered the architect of the century yes. by AIA. And it's somebody that you don't learn about in school, but you really should. Um, he was the creator of like American Art Deco, um, and and uh, 100 Barclay actually is a, is a full landmark, like the individual landmark, the entire entirety of the building. So we did all the exterior, uh, uh, you know, design work as well for the restoration, uh, and as well as the the interior lobby. Um, but frankly, the design was so good back uh, when they built it um, that there wasn't a whole lot that we needed to, to do to improve it. Like um, each one of these projects takes kind of a, a, a different approach to, to, um, uh, to um, renovate them, right? And in this one, it was a very delicate hand on our part. There's not a whole lot um, that, that you see. It was more an enhancement of everything uh, that was already there. So with the lobby, um, you know, after September 11th did uh, significant damage uh, as did Hurricane Sandy. Um, and so a lot of restoration that happened that preceded us. Uh, a lot of other great architects have worked on the building. Um, so for us, it was just really coming in, working with a lighting designer, illuminating the space in a way that it hasn't been since the austerity days of the 1970s when they removed a lot of the, the lights and uh, covered up windows. And so just bringing back a lot of that original vision um, uh, and uh, and then trying to find a clever way for the operations of, of Verizon, still a tenant in the lower 10 stories of the building, um, to remain there while you have a, a residential uh, tenancy happening. So we bifurcated the lobby with a, with a, a, um, a grill based on the geometry uh, of, of a lot of the ornament that Ralph Walker uh, used throughout the project. And so we kind of, it was kind of a homage to him that the, that the new really was based on the composition and his kind of rationale or logic applied to, uh, uh, to the building in the 1920s. Hmm. All right. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to look at some of the other buildings that Wayne and Jordan have been working on. 
Uh, you're listening to Rediscovering New York in our special episode on architects and landmarks. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Oops, I thought I was unmuted there. A little technical difficulty. We're back. <laughs> Support for the program comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get off on the second half of the show, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am Dita Real Estate Agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, and especially into landmark buildings, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our guests tonight are Wayne Norbeck and Jordan Rogoff of DXA Studio. Guys, if we have any of our listeners who want to get in touch with you and find out more about DXA, how can they do that? They can, uh, they can check us out uh, on our website, uh, which is dxastudio.com. And do you have a phone number contact as well in case people uh, like the old-fashioned way to uh, reach sure. out to you? Yeah, so our phone number is 212-874-0567. And our uh, email is wn at dxastudio.com and also jr at dxastudio.com. Well, great. 
Guys, I'd like to ask you about another project you're working on. Um, and this actually uh, might be uh, a monumental one, uh, 827 and 831 Broadway. Before we talk about what you're doing with it, uh, let's talk about why it was landmarked. Uh, how, how did 831 end up getting to be a landmark? So our, our client um, purchased the property uh, with, the, with the building's history kind of unbeknownst to him. And at that time, it wasn't designated. However, there were uh, a number of, uh, uh, of groups, including uh, Greenwich Village Historic Preservation Society, that were interested in, in preserving it. Um, and I think the New York Times ended up doing a, an editorial on it, and that kind of triggered um, a, uh, a reconsideration by landmarks um, to actually designate it as an individual landmark. That area, um, which is on uh, 12th uh, Street and Broadway, just south of Union Square, is not a historic district, although there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of determination by uh, people in that neighborhood to make it one, uh, that to date it, it does not remain one. So, um, so what happened was the reconsideration landmarks preservation commission really focused on the cultural significance of the site. And most of us have walked by that building many times in our lives and had no idea what happened there, but it was actually the studio of Willem de Kooning and a number of the other ABEX um, artists, or abstract expressionists. And so the abstract expressionist movement was, was really the first time in New York City's history that it was seen as a cultural capital. You had World War II happening, and you had artists coming over uh, to the States and, uh, and work not coming out of Europe any longer. And so you had this kind of cohort that developed um, in this area, and this is kind of the epicenter of it, 831 Broadway, uh, of these artists developing a new art form. And so uh, that, uh, more than the architecture, really perpetuated the conversation. However, uh, Griffith Thomas was the, uh, the architect and very well known for a number of uh, other uh, uh, projects. However, this was, this was not seen to be anything um, really worthy of an individual designation. However, when you coupled that with the fact that it was a, a so important uh, culturally, uh, and historically for the city that um, that it kind of got rolled into one uh, and was designated. So our client's demolition permit to take the building down and build a 300-foot tower was rescinded, and uh, we were brought into the fray to help navigate the process. So what do you actually, what have you designed to go on top of, of this building? So, you know, as I mentioned that we've all walked by this building without knowing just you know, how important what happened inside, the, the, the magic that happened inside its walls uh, was, uh, and, and how significant it was to, to New York City's ascendance to, a, you know, cultural capital of the world. Um, so we felt that uh, with all of the additional area that they were going to use to put into a high rise, that we could, we could do a vertical enlargement, like a little addition on top of it that would be visible. Um, and in, in a way, it would pronounce a little bit about what happened inside the building. So um, we decided to draw upon um, the, the, the work of the artists that were there and really try to find a, you know, an architectural homage uh, to painters. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous territory trying to bridge the worlds of uh, architecture and arts and everyone has an opinion about this sort of thing, but we, but we took their work and tried to find these common themes among these really kind of seemingly disparate artists. And we found this idea of looking at the world in a totally different way, taking mediums uh, like paint uh, and using it in a way that nobody's used before to express emotions and, and uh, kind of dynamic qualities. And what's more dynamic than like Union Square and all the activity that happens there. So we, we looked at doing kind of a reflective um, uh, vertical enlargement or addition First, it was kind of fractured glass that recomposed um, all of the scenery um, and activity around and, and kind of presented a curated uh, view um, that we felt was, was kind of like evocative of, of, of some of the painter's work. And then ultimately, Landmarks felt that that was a little too avant-garde 
and perhaps not tied in enough to the um, uh, existing building um, that we should come back with a more balanced approach, which we did and ultimately got it approved. Uh, and that was to actually look at distorting the, the elevation of the existing, the Griffith Thomas building and doing so with slumped glass. Um, so we got a lot of the same kind of qualities of the initial uh, design, but it related much more to the architecture and the, uh, the kind of hierarchy of the, of the facade below. So there's a nice balance of considerations there. And so it's very ambitious. It's pushing the envelope on what you can do with glass. It's like nine foot by 12 foot pieces of slumped glass that are reflective. Um, so it's pretty wild. Um, we're really excited about it. Where is the project now? And is there a time frame of when construction might start on, on it? I, I think there's a good chance if the pandemic uh, didn't happen that we'd be under construction now. Um, but I think uh, one thing the pandemic uh, has really laid bare is, is um, you know, commercial, uh, commercial property um, uh, issues. Just trying to understand what, what the true value is in the city. There's kind of a recalibration happening. Um, so where the project is right now is, uh, I, you know, I think it, there's a change of ownership happening. And then I think there's a, a little bit of a waiting period to see just how the market shakes out. But we've got every confidence that it'll uh, get built uh, when things kind of get restored back to normal a little bit. So um, let's talk about a building that you're designing in the Tribeca East Historic District. Uh, which also has many cast iron buildings. In this case, the building is 14 White Street. Uh, can you talk a little bit in uh, to start about what a new build in a historic district actually sort of entails uh, in terms of, you know, what kind of satisfaction you have to give to the LPC, to the community board, et cetera, and so forth? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, we, we've talked so far about more restoration projects and then addition projects. So this is kind of a whole different ballgame. Uh, doing a ground up uh, project. Um, so for this uh, project, it's on a triangular shaped parking lot uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Tribeca uh, across from the Roxy Hotel. Mm -hmm. And the, I guess our argument really focused on the fact uh, that Sixth Avenue was kind of cut through the neighborhood. You had a, a grid and then the, the, this like massive intrusion came through and change the dynamic of, of kind of the street life there. Mm -hmm. So that, that angled kind of cut that happened really became the basis of the design. Um, mm -hmm. And we kind of tried to synthesize that with um, the consideration of, you know, this being in a lot of ways, the birthplace um, of cast iron architecture and mm -hmm. cast iron architecture with James Bogardus in the 1860s um, was like this innovative thing. It's a way to save a lot of money. Everybody wants marble facades, but they don't want to pay for it. So we're just going to do this out of really junk metal, cast it, paint it, make it look like stone. And so that was really one of the most innovative uh, kind of metal facade systems ever mm -hmm. created. And so we thought, what, where are we today? You know, some, uh, you know, 160 years later, uh, where are we today? Uh, when it comes to that type of innovation. And we started looking at rain screen systems, uh, building in energy recovery units for a passive, uh, uh, you know, system, uh, mechanical system for the building, um, and really try to use this cutting edge, cutting edge technology to communicate with the, the cutting edge technology of yesteryear. Um, and we looked at uh, a metal envelope system that could be done with, uh, with, with, you know, fine metals, um, like like brass and bronze, ones that'll age over time and kind of patinate, uh, mm. evolve. Uh, we love that idea that a building kind of changes over time, grows wiser, um, kind of soaks up its environment and becomes uh, uh, something else. Um, so that was really exciting. And then taking the technology that we used to fabricate this system, uh, taking the, the line work from our CAD drawings, the, the kind of vectorized lines that we use to, to design with, and that becomes the kind of decorative layer that, that, that's actually scribed in uh, to the facade because there's so much decoration in the cast iron architecture. But here we have a record of how the building was built, which we thought was pretty exciting. So there's a lot of kind of storytelling in the design. And I think that's what led to the success and getting, getting an approval. We got 
uh, all kinds of awards for the design and landmarks was very complimentary saying it was one of the better designs they've, they've ever seen. Um, and I think that's, that's part of it is uh, there's, when you're trying to establish why a building is appropriate in a neighborhood, um, you've got to have a reason for it. And it's gotta be, it's gotta be based on something. And the neighborhood has a lot um, of, of cues that you can listen to, to help craft that narrative uh, and, and make the case for, um, for its appropriateness. Right. All right. Uh, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with architect Swain Norbeck and Jordan Rogoff. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. You're back to Rediscovering New York in episode 114 on Architects and Landmarks. My guests are Wayne Norbeck and Jordan Rogoff of DXA Studio, both founders and partners in the firm. And my co-host tonight is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David, do you want to talk for a minute about Landmark Branding and what we do? It seems kind of spot on, given that we're talking about landmarks. What does Landmark Branding do exactly? Well, Jeff, I provide creative marketing support to uh, the owners and builders of architecturally distinguished buildings in New York City and nationwide. Uh, I work with brokers, but also with architects and designers and developers uh, to create things like building profiles, uh, VIP tours, uh, presentations about architecture, about neighborhoods. Uh, I do a series of special talks that I'm developing with the New York Adventure Club on global architecture, both current trends and history. Uh, you already mentioned my blog, Every Building on Fifth, which I'm very proud of. It's a capsule history of every single building on Fifth Avenue, uh, along with a usually crummy photograph taken by myself. But <laughs> it is a record of Fifth Avenue from the Washington Square Arch all the way up to the Harlem Armory, which is one of New York's really great unsung Art Deco masterpieces. Um, as you also mentioned, the nascent art tours that I've been doing with Jennifer Wallace, we're hoping to kind of get back to those post-COVID, where we're able to take... Uh, professionals from the real estate, but also other professional uh, sort of spheres, bring them together and talk to them about the importance of architecture, design, public space, and public art as economic engines, as ways to kind of keep the city uh, alive and growing, as it were. So working on a book proposal on the history of the penthouse as an architectural type, and um, looking forward to continuing our radio discussions. And I have to add, it's great having you as a special consultant on my show, and even better when you're on the air. Uh, thanks for co-hosting this episode with me tonight. Um, Wayne and Jordan, let's move to the Upper West Side. Uh, on West 81st Street between Columbus and Amsterdam, 
uh, a project that you're working on with the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. It's an example of what I find in the real estate industry is an increasingly common type of project. That's of, of converting or reimagining religious buildings. Uh, I don't know, maybe religion's going a little out and the demand for condos and commercial space has been going up. Um, converting or reimagining religious structures into more diverse use has been going on for quite some time, but not all religious structures are landmarked. The Mount Pleasant Baptist Church is a landmark. Are there any particular challenges dealing with a religious structure that's landmarked versus a structure that's landmarked that's not a house of worship? Uh, I I know it's a tough question, but I like to ask tough questions sometimes. Well, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I think what makes the religious structures um, specifically challenging is they're usually kind of longer span, right? They're like large uh, sanctuary spaces. And so structurally, there's some challenges there. And then there's the kind of artifacts of, uh, of their lives as, um, as religious institutions, right? There's stained glass. There's oftentimes some really beautiful, ornate uh, woodwork that, that accompanies some of the interiors. And so um, there's a complexity to, to kind of the, the salvage, kind of replacement renovation dynamic um, that happens with them that, that doesn't happen with most other buildings. Um, so... Speaking of the salvage, I uh, was reading about one of your projects where you did salvage, I believe it was this one you salvaged and incorporated, some of the stained glass windows, but not necessarily all of them. When you realize that a historic detail might have some value, but not really a place in the completed renovation, do you make any kind of suggestions to the developer owner about where they could be dispersed, reused, you know, sold, et cetera, and so forth in terms of salvaging the work as a work? Always, always. I mean, I think our first instinct is always to keep it on site. Um, so we'll use it for uh, for the for uh, a 140 West 81st. We actually kept all of the large stained glass in place, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, on site. We actually brought it down into the sanctuary space. Um, mm -hmm. So where where we can expose that to natural light, we did. Where we couldn't, we um, have installed uh, them in light boxes. So it kind of simulates um, uh, natural light in there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been very important in, in places that we couldn't keep these artifacts uh, in, in one location. We try to bring that into either amenity or shared space um, so people can appreciate it. I think it just adds the conversation we were having a little while ago about authenticity. I think it adds to that. It's like your mm -hmm. history and there's significance to the place that, 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 that you are. Uh, that you are in so uh, that that adds to the experience we think it's worth uh, fighting for mm. well guys you know we're um coming up to the end of the show we have a couple of minutes left it's amazing how an hour show just goes really fast when there's so much that's that's substantive to talk about especially about new york um but i want to move on to a project that you proposed for a structure that's not a building per se but that most of the planet is familiar with on some level and that's the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, or as you call it, reimagining the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, what's the background of you putting together the plan? So this this was a, a competition that was put on by the Van Allen Institute last year, and um, it was it was an interesting time for us because this is one of the first times we've ever tried to work remotely as a studio and, and enter a competition. But the the idea was to really think about how the bridge could evolve in that that um, you know, th there's so many issues with the tourists and, and the cars and so forth. And our, our idea was to really you know, pull all of that back, try to bring it back to its original history. We have a sort of forward thinking trolley, bring it back to pedestrians um, and, and just make it a really great place to be in that we could actually connect the parks, sort of city hall park over the Brooklyn Bridge Park and, um, and just kind of bring it back to its original intention as a, as a really wonderful promenade. How was the project received? How did people who 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 uh, of the powers that be what did they what did they think of it when they saw it? So we we didn't place in the competition, but we we received a lot of great uh, press and awards actually for it, and including the Architects Newspaper, AIA, um, New York State Chapter, and then we're up for an award uh, next week actually by uh, NYC by Design as well. So I think a lot of times. Um, there's an activism that happens when you don't win a competition 
but you win all the awards uh, except for that competition. <laughs> so, so people, you know, a lot of people saying, maybe, maybe uh, this this should uh, be the design. Right. Yeah, I get that accolade a lot. Sometimes when I uh, uh, propose a plan to market it, it's a great idea, Jeff, to sell my property, but we're giving the listing to somebody else. Uh, (laughs) On that note, guys, we're out of time. Um, My guests today have been Wayne Norbeck and Jordan Rogoff of DXA Studio, which you can uh, find out about at www.dxastudio.com. And my great co-host for the show, David Griffin of Landmark Branding at www.landmarkbranding.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being a guest on this really illuminating conversation about landmarks and architects in New York. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the great Emily Schulman. Our special consultant, who's the co-host on the show tonight, is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Great. Take care. Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.